this evening I want to uh, extend the, uh, in a sense, the morning instructions about uh, working with um, thoughts and emotions, how to be skillful with thoughts and emotions, by addressing an area that can often be very confusing and challenging, which is that how, in particularly in the context of service and social action, we understand and work with views, opinions, and the judgmental mind. <laughs> That's my theme for this evening, how to practice, uh, particularly in the context of uh, uh, the theme of awakening in the context of service and um, social action. So I, want, I really want to uh, take that in three parts, maybe four parts, Um, The first is to say why the whole theme is is important, challenging, and confusing. (laughs) Hopefully in a non-confusing way. (laughs) So, and then I want to talk on the brief side about what we might call views or opinions and give most of my energy to talking about uh, what we might call judgments, the judgmental mind, and finish by pointing to a few ways to practice. So to come in the end to be very specific and uh, pragmatic in that sense of pointing to ways of practicing with these, with these areas. So first, uh, it's a very crucial area and it's also uh, very confusing. You know, particularly for many of us, we think of meditation, and it's important to see that it's a thought about meditation. We think about meditation as about getting rid of thinking, getting rid of concepts. It's a very prominent way of understanding our meditation practice. And it's been often interpreted like that in many traditions. Uh, I remember David and I were talking, I think especially in Zen, which has had a very strong influence, especially in the early formation of Buddhism in the U.S. In Zen, uh, it's often said we should get rid of concepts and thinking. There's a line, I think, from the third Zen patriarch which says, stop thinking and there is nothing that you will not know. There's also another line, I think, in the same text where it says, don't think of thinking as your enemy. Uh, But would that be confusing to get both messages? Perhaps. (laughs) And so, uh, and I think many of us uh, also come from a context, uh, from a culture, you know, increasingly world culture, which in many ways is dominated by thinking. A lot of thinking. The, the Thai teacher, Achan Buddhadasa, um, great teacher of the 20th century, influenced a lot of people. I had the uh, honor and pleasure of uh, meeting him and uh, I don't know if I'd say studying with him, but I was at his monastery for a while in Thailand. And he was once asked what he thought about Western civilization, which is always a great uh, question to ask. Uh, you know, Gandhi was asked the same thing, so maybe you know his answer. His answer was, it would be a good idea. <laughs> uh, 
And Acharya Buddhadasa was asked the question, and his answer, what, what's Western civilization? He says, lost in thought. <laughs> and so many of us uh, come to meditation, and partly because we have a sense of our minds being rather out of control, extremely active, rather compulsive, preoccupied, chronically repetitive, and otherwise tormenting, (laughs) as well as being very useful for all sorts of purposes. (laughs) So, um, you know, complex. But many of us certainly approach meditation to have some... uh, way of not being quite so dominated by thinking, you know, and we, you know, and it's uh, most of the retreats we do at Spirit Rock are silent retreats. We don't often give that much uh, attention to to thinking. Uh, And we, you know, we can uh, see how, how active thinking is in the culture. And we can also see that in many ways, the, the compulsive active thinking is not of great quality. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we, we were talking there's, there's a way in which um, certainly American culture is, is in some ways there's a lot of thinking but there's in some ways a low level of what we might call critical thinking what's taught in the universities is critical thinking uh, and so a lot of thinking it's, it's kind of a paradox right it's like and there's often a real disdain for clear thinking in the culture. It's quite interesting. I mean, it's very, it was very evident in the last administration, you know, with uh, you know, many ways, but, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the most scary things was actually the contempt for science, which was quite pronounced, you know, and um, which is, again, it's quite strong in the culture. So add all this up, you know, and it, it can be quite confusing. We get messages from the culture, we uh, are aware that we're conditioned to be, have a lot of thinking. We appreciate sometimes the peace and perspective we have in meditation, and yet it can be very confusing. And in fact, I think one of the, we were again talking about this, one of the reasons why some people are not so attracted to try to look at the connection of uh, uh, meditation and social issues is because they experience the world of activism or of people interested in social justice as a world of highly contentious thinking. You know, it's a, I don't want more of that, people say sometimes. So it's, so here we are, here we have a, an interest in bringing the together service, social action, some of us more in one or the other with meditation. And what do we make of thinking? What do we make of... Uh, the uh, views that we have, the theories, which we really, in many ways, seem helpful. It seems helpful if one's dealing with injustice to know the nature of injustice. To you know, we have many what seem like helpful theories to unpack our social problems, right? All sorts of theories which many of us use regularly, you know. And so, how do we act skillfully with that? We we also know that in the area of service and social change, there also can be all sorts of concerns and issues and problems with the use of uh, views, opinions, theories. We know that there can be um, 
tremendous problems of um, dogmatism, of authoritarianism, of really rigid views, very, very common. I think that phrase, uh, politically correct, was originally a joke about uh, more progressive organizations and their tendencies to be rigid. That was where that that, uh, line came from originally. And uh, you know, and when I've when I've sometimes done groups with activists and asked them what are your what are the main uh, issues that you have that you you know, might bring spiritual resources to, and they say we have such strong views and we are so critical of others in the organization. We get so angry and are, have so much conflict within our organization, even because we think I'm right, you're wrong, and so forth. And so views can be very divisive. And they can be very, very hard to handle. There's also the way that we often use our views as a basis for demonizing others. You know, whether it's people who are in our organization. Um, again, we were talking about this, what's sometimes called the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> Where we sometimes have the most animus towards people who are just a hair's different than us in our views. Anyone notice that? <laughs> yeah. and, and, but of course, we can also demonize the opponents, that they are somehow, um, well, to use uh, David's framework, that they fit in some category related to evil or wrong or bad and so forth. So how do we work with views? I think you can see how it's a challenging area challenging area to make sense of. How do we work with that? So two perspectives I want to give. One is more working with the whole idea of views or theories or ideas. And the second is more specifically with uh, uh, a strong judgmental energy. And they can be and often are joined. <laughs> you know, that, that we, we become judgmental uh, towards others with different views, different theories, and so forth. So first, uh, some about uh, views. And it's, there's actually, in the teachings of the Buddha, there's a uh, whole fairly extensive understanding of how to be skillful with views. And I should say that the whole emphasis that I'll be giving in terms of working with views and judgmental mind, is that uh, views or even judgments can carry discernment and wisdom, but they very often get connected with what we might call reactivity, uh, which we could think of as either grabbing hold of a view or an idea or pushing something away. They get connected with reactivity in the mind and when that happens, they tend to be causes of suffering. And so the long-term work is to really study our views, our judgments, and through various practices to sort out the discernment from the reactivity. So easier said than done. But, but, I, but from a conceptual point of view, it's, I think it's pretty simple, actually. In other words, so it's, it's about having views but not being attached to them, for example. And there's a lot that more that can be said there. And same thing with judgmental mind tends to often have an insight linked with grabbing hold of an idea 
or pushing something away. So I'll explicate that more, but that's more or less the direction I want to go. So all of the practices that we might do are helpful for that sorting out process. So first we have to get to know what our views and judgments are, study them, and then we do use different practices to see where we're attached, where we're reactive, and work with that. For our most deep or chronic views and judgments, this can take a while. Okay? So in the uh, teachings of the Buddha, there's a very, very pragmatic sense of how to use views and how to use ideas or concepts. And there is a criticism of uh, dogmatic ways of using views, ways that might be connected with some kind of attachment. So in one famous text, one famous discourse, the Buddha compares all of the teachings, you know, because in the teachings that we get from the Buddha or from pretty much any spiritual tradition, there are all sorts of very specific teachings. They're what we might call theories. There's there's an understanding of the nature of the mind. There's an understanding of the nature of the self, as we saw this morning. There's an understanding of how we get confused. There's an understanding of how we become free. All of these are expressed in words. They're theories in a sense. And so how do we work with them? Uh, The Buddha's answer was to really focus on the pragmatic value of theories and not to get too hung up or caught with them. And so one uh, beautiful image that he had was that the, uh, the spiritual journey is to go, as it were, across the ocean to the other shore of liberation. To, to use that, we use a raft, which is skillful tools and skillful theories that help us on that trip. And then he said, once we get to the other shore, we let the raft down. We don't go on that island with the raft on our back. In other words, the raft is a means to an end. It's not something, it's not something absolute. Uh, some of you know uh, the words of Thich Nhat Hanh uh, about this, this point about views, and they're, they're actually in the packet, and I think, I think it's the, maybe the first, uh, first uh, entry, really, page two, probably, <laughs> where he says, uh, he says, do not be idolatrous or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. Buddhist systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. It's a guide, guideline for working with uh, views and theories. Then he says, do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and the world at all times. Do not force others, including children, to by any means whatsoever to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda, or even education. 
However, through compassionate dialogue, help others renounce fanaticism and narrowness. So there's a sense of views are means to an end. We have to really continually be on the lookout for attachment to our views, which again, we might see as part of the project of filling the sense of lack. You know, I have, you know, I am not complete in myself or I feel some anxiety. Oh, I'll solve that problem by being someone who's in possession of the truth. Could be. Could very much follow that project. And it's a way of making sense of a lot of human history. That there's some some way that we can seize upon truth because it seems to be a way to, uh, or seize upon a theory as being complete truth because it gives us a way to organize reality very simply more or less along the lines, we're right, they're wrong, and we don't have to think critically. Right? Something like that. We don't have to look at experience anymore because we have the truth. Right? So very common. We know that one. We know that one quite well. And so that was the, the emphasis of the Buddha was on that pragmatic sense. There's this very famous story where he met the a people uh, who were the Kalamas, who lived in a a place called Kesaputa, which was uh, on the crossroads in India. Uh, and it was this village where they had all sorts of spiritual teachers coming through. And I like to think of it as like the Bay Area. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of like in Kesaputa, you could, you know, do a weekend workshop on Tantra. You could study Zen, Tibetan, Sufi, Christian mysticism. You'd have native shamans coming through regularly. You could do all of that, right? It's kind of like, uh, kind of like here. I mean, you you gave up all sorts of opportunities to be here, right? You could have gone to 18 workshops in the time you were here, and probably more expensive and not as good food. But in any case, um, and so the case of Puda was like that. So they had people coming through teacher after teacher, and the people there were confused. What should we think? All sorts of teachers come through, and, of course, they criticized the other teachers who were there last week. You know, that fellow who gave the weekend workshop last week. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> you know, wrong ideas. And so, and, and so when the Buddha came, they said, okay, here are you, you know, another teacher on the circuit. <laughs> right? And uh, why should we, we believe what you say? And he gave this very stunning response, which is um, really one of, one of the most, uh, for many people, one of the most beloved passages in, um, in the teachings, where he said, um, it's proper for you, Kalamas, to doubt uh, what, is, what is true, what is right. It is inherently doubtful. Uncertainty has arisen in you about what is doubtful. Come, Kalamas, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition. So he's saying 2,500 years ago, don't believe this because of tradition. Very contemporary in many ways, right? Don't believe it because of tradition, nor because of rumor, nor because of what is in a scripture, right? nor among surmise and reasoning, nor upon an axiom, 
nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration this is our teacher. You know, in other words, the authority of a teacher. But rather, when you know yourselves, these things are skillful, these things are unskillful, these things are censured by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to suffering. When they leave, when you find things that lead to suffering, abandon them. When you find things that lead to freedom, follow them. So in other words, look for yourself and look at your experience and have your, whatever you understand, whatever you follow, really be based solidly on direct experience. And so that's very much the, the guidance that we're given in terms of views to really be very uh, careful with attachment to views to um, have a very pragmatic approach, to ground whatever views we do have solidly on experience, and to watch when we go away from experience into views. So that kind of, that kind of guidance uh, suggests some practices that it can be very, very helpful, and I'll come back to this in terms of judgments, it can be very, very helpful to look carefully at what our views are, to know what they are. Where am I, where, you know, to really study, what are my main ideas and views? What are my top ten? Where, am I, where do I have attachment to views? How do I find, how do I study that? How do I know? Typically, um, probably, you can find out for yourself, but you could probably, your friends will probably give you a very quick answer about where, you, where you're attached. <laughs> or your family members. <laughs> you know? And they may, they may be correct, or they may be, you, know, you have to, to, to make a discernment. Uh, we can also really look for, and I think this is really especially important, we can look for where we're attached to views in our speech practice, in our discussion, we can see where attachment arises. We can see where we get charged. We can see where in dialogue with another person, we have a lot of charge around a particular issue or theme and we, we get tense with someone else's uh, idea. We can see where we have uh, very judgmental ideas appearing. You know, there was a very interesting experience that I had uh, um, some time ago uh, when I was, uh, I, I was invited to be part of a program uh, called Revisioning Philosophy that was, that was um, sponsored by one of the Rockefellers and they assembled about 25 people uh, who, some really wonderful people like Houston Smith, some of you know his name or uh, some of you know, may know um, Jacob Needleman who was... Uh, uh, maybe still is at San Francisco State. Uh, um, we worked a lot with uh, one people with Susan Griffin. We had uh, a lot. We had a whole conference in this series on uh, feminist philosophy and so forth. We had people from other countries. Enrique Dussel from uh, uh, well, originally I think uh, Argentinian, but but uh, living in Mexico came and. Um, what was really interesting was that when these 
people, these people who had devoted a lot of time to wise use of thought, came together and people were, uh, we were talking with each other, we found that very quickly things seemed to get contentious and people seemed to be attached to their views. <laughs> and so one of the people in the program, I really, I really remember this because it really affected me, named uh, Robert McDermott, who some of you may know, he later became president of CIAS in, in uh, San Francisco. And Robert said, rather than taking a difference in views as a starting point for war, why don't we take difference of views as a starting point for inquiry? Mm. <laughs> and so it, 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 and this really connected with me. I really uh, was very uh, touched by it. But what he meant was that, okay, you notice you have a different view than someone and you feel some charge around it. Study yourself. Uh, what, what about this other view is so much an issue for me? Is there possibly something I might learn from this person? What might I learn? What is, what is there in my background that leads me to be so charged about this? And there could be things that are valid. There could be things that are problematic. Can I really look into that and really study myself and be open to exploring? And for me, that became a very important practice, which I've done a lot since I learned about that and, and uh, introduced it to people. Very helpful. Take a difference of views as something that could really promote learning. You know? And I, I was also thinking about um, a time when a group of us had a retreat at Los Alamos uh, National Laboratory, which doesn't usually sponsor retreats. <laughs> this is where they make nuclear weapons. Right? And we, uh, we, it was an interfaith retreat, and part of the purpose was to bring attention to nuclear weapons and so forth. And they gave us a uh, permission to do, have our retreat um, on one of the parking lots. <laughs> <laughs> and they said we could, we could meet there as long as we wanted, but we couldn't use any of their bathrooms. <laughs> so we thought these were acceptable conditions. <laughs> And so we, um, we bought, bought uh, we rented, the retreat rented a big RV that was like 70 feet long or something, which, all, which, get, which had a bathroom in it. It also provided shade in the parking lot. <laughs> and we did our retreat there for five days. Um, and we, it was really moving. I mean, we had people... One time there was a woman who came up who must have worked there and she came up to us and just silently gave us flowers and bowed. It's really quite something. And every lunchtime we went into the main cafeteria at Los Alamos and and met with the scientists who were designing nuclear weapons and talked with them. And our group had to see how do I talk to people with potentially, in this case actually, different views. And it was very interesting because some people had a really hard time with that. They just felt they could not open up to these people. You know? what and year was that? that was two, it was right before 9-11. Yeah. I know, because it probably wouldn't be permitted after that. Oh. Yeah. So I, think, I think it was uh, maybe, maybe uh, 
possibly either the summer of 2001 or maybe the year before, I forget. But it was around that time. And, yeah, and uh, it was very interesting to actually talk with the people who were building nuclear weapons and actually be able to share with them. And some people had a hard time. It was really interesting for me because without even knowing me, when they would talk with me, they would first try to give their own rationale and defense for why it was a good idea to build nuclear weapons. It was really interesting to listen to them, to really get a sense. And my aim was to listen to them carefully and be able to connect around in some way, around what they were talking about. So that in itself is a huge practice, practicing with people with different views. Let me me say also a few words about about, uh, judgmental mind. Probably... Um, I'm defining, because it's very connected with views, because we can often be judgmental of those with, with different views, as well as those with behavior who, which we don't uh, approve of, as well as for maybe 200 other reasons, where <laughs> we can judge ourselves, right? And I'm thinking of uh, judgments uh, as, as in the sense of judgmental. And so judgments would be times when uh, I've done something and I really judge myself very harshly and come down hard on myself. Very, very common issue, right? Many of us uh, have that experience, you know, even people with a lot of uh, spiritual practice. I was one of the teachers for our two-month retreat here, and it was amazing. People who were really dedicated with years and years of practice still so many have to work with uh, self-judgment. It's very strong. In fact, the reason that I got so interested in the theme of judgments was from uh, a stretch of time when I was working with my own judgmental mind towards others, and, and I think the harshest was towards myself, and really wanting to work with it and find ways of transforming it, and working with some skillful teachers who really helped me a lot. So we can be judgmental of ourselves, we can be judgmental of our friends, we can be judgmental towards political figures. And what's really interesting is that often our, that judgmental mind has a lot of discernment, has a lot of accuracy, can really uh, see clearly what's there. I can judge, uh, you know, I can judge a politician or I can judge a policy and say that, you know, you know, that president advocated torture, right? Or I could say that was a torture regime. Or I could say things about, you know, I could uh, see certain things accurately and still have a really a charge, uh, the, the judgment be very, very strong. And we know that that judgmental mind can cause us a lot of suffering. It can also, like attachment to views, can really make um, certain relationships deteriorate it can lead to quite a lot of suffering and problems. And I want to give a, a definition of judgments that can really help us. And ultimately, it goes back to what I talked about earlier, about that uh, distinction between discernment and the reactivity. So what I want to, uh, how I want to define judgments are they are some kind of observation or discernment or noticing linked with reactivity. You, know, you can think of all the examples I gave. You know, one of the examples when I was uh, working on my own 
self-judgment, one of the judgments which was harshest in my mind was a sense, this was, this was uh, about 12 years ago and I was doing a long re- two-month retreat here and I um, was coming from a time of having been very busy, you know, very active, doing a lot of things and I judged myself for neglecting my spiritual practice too much. You know, and it was very, very harsh and I compared myself, you know how the judging mind works, you compare yourself to people who are getting it totally right, right? who have the ideal life. Totally projection, but we still do it, right? You know, and I, I mean, I didn't know a lot of the reality of the people I was comparing myself to, but that didn't matter. Right? And it was very, very harsh, and a lot of suffering. Of course, in the worst case scenario, that kind of self-judgment can lead to really um, getting quite depressed or really getting, having that become quite a cloud. That, that's there in certain ways. And, and so uh, there was some kind of uh, criticism. I hadn't done enough uh, spiritual practice. And there could, there's, a, there's a grain of truth in that, maybe more than a grain. Maybe, maybe I sensed, oh, spiritual practice is really important to me. I could have said it a different way. I said I didn't, hadn't done enough or something I had used the last year's Unwisely, I didn't. Use, the judgmental mind is not so polite, <laughs> right? It's quite, it's quite harsh. I think we know that, right? And and so, um, the point I'm making is that there could be some insight there. There could be some discernment. I can be very judgmental about this policy. I can be judgmental about this injustice, this particular person's comments. I can make all, and I can have a lot of seeing and clarity. But there's something about it that's also reactive, that's, that is driven to push away in some compulsive way. And that's what I think characterizes the judgmental mind and makes it and has it lead to so much suffering. Does that distinction make sense between the, or that sense of judgments? Because, you know, as a teacher, for example, I'm asked all the time to be discerning. It's important for me to see clearly what there is in a person. And we can see, if I'm judgmental, my teaching will be quite ineffective. Right? I can see the same thing, and I say, oh, that person is learning so slowly. You know? And it's an occupational hazard for teachers to become judgmental, right? It would, it would, it's, you know, or anyone in any, any service capacity, right? You're, you know, it can happen all the time. And so, but you can see how I could have a discernment that was quite accurate. And then I could either not be reactive, in which case, as a teacher, I'd probably be helpful, or I could be quite reactive, in which case the other person would pick it up really, really quickly. Right? And it would, it would and say, that's my last retreat with Donald. <laughs> you know, or, or something like that. Of course, this never happens. <laughs> Yeah, reactive is a word that we often use to mean the, uh, you know, the, the uh, tendencies to either grab hold of something or to push away something. And it's really linked with, you know, in, in other terms, that, this is what we would talk about as greed, hatred, and delusion, or, or uh, grasping, grasping and 
some kind of re- reactive pushing away. So the reactive quality that we're pointing to uh, suggests a certain level of compulsivity, unconsciousness, and that it's very, it's just uh, repetitive also. And so it really is a, a, a word that we often use in uh, meditation circles to suggest that kind of compulsive grasping and compulsive pushing away, which are taken to be the, you know, we'll be talking about that some tomorrow, but um, <clears throat> taken to be in many of the Buddhist understandings, it's greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, again, we were talking about a little this morning, it's really, that's, it's more, greed may not be the best translation, but it's a sense of grabbing hold, compulsive wanting, in other words. That's, that's, that's another way, compulsive wanting, compulsive aversion. That's another way of talking about it. So we may be compulsively averse to someone's view or to someone's behavior, meaning that we're not very mindful and we're not very aware. It's, and it's typically, another way to say it is it's habitual behavior, often passed on. Because one of the interesting things about judgments is that they get passed on intergenerationally. You know? And there's a strong social component. We can have judgments that are quite uh, personal. We think they're quite personal. And we can have judgments based on seeing injustice or seeing a social problem. And there also are judgments that are, in a way, passed on by the society. That uh, there are certain dominant viewpoints in society. And if you're on the wrong end of that, you'll get a negative judgment from many people. You know, maybe like some of the examples of, uh, um, I don't know, uh, maybe even of being truthful in certain situations. The dominant approach would be to say, uh, go along with the system or something like that. But I was thinking actually more in that instance about judgments. We can see it a lot in terms of gender, ethnicity, race, you know, racism, uh, in terms of sexual orientation. There are dominant judgments that the society gives that we often internalize. You know, this goes back to that subject we were talking before. So uh, I was thinking of uh, a well-known study, one of the important studies for the 1954 Supreme Court decision to desegregate the schools was a study done by Mamie and Kenneth Clark, who were in New York. Some of you maybe know that study, of that study. It was a study of uh, young girls and dolls. And what they found, they took particularly took African-American girls, like four to seven, and gave them dolls, some of which were black and some of which were white. And they asked, uh, which doll is like you? Which is the good doll? Which is the bad doll? And they found that uh, the African-American girls said, the black doll is like me, the black doll is the bad doll. Where did that come from? Right? That came from the, the weight of the culture, and that gets internalized, and that, what does that translate into? Severe self-judgment, right? in all sorts of ways. You know? And, that, and that, you know, we can see that in so many ways, that we internalize these judgments of the society. We, we do that in all those ways that I mentioned. We do that 
We do it in, in really in many of the ways that David was mentioning this morning. It's a very powerful area. We, we internalize uh, the judgments that, like David was saying, that those people's lives are good. Those people, you know, we, I was thinking about the way that we project uh, good lives onto people we call stars. You know, you know I, when I go to the dentist, I sometimes read People magazine. <laughs> My only opportunity. Because <laughs> I go to grocery stores that sell organic food and they don't have People magazine right as you check out. <laughs> So, uh, as I see in my occasional visits to Safeway. Um, so, you know, do, do they have Safeway in Oklahoma? No. Okay. I thought, <laughs> thought it might be a Bay Area store, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so, so, in any case, we have, we, we have all those ways that we internalize the values of society. And, and it becomes, you know, so the judgments can be quite strong. They can come out of the social conditioning. They can come out of our own experiences, out of our family context. They can be, they can, you know, typically many of us have very strong judgments that organize our whole being that get inculcated about age three or four or five or six. Many of us have judgments, for example, self-judgments that I'm basically problematic or I'm flawed in some way. You know, and, and a lot of uh, meditative work and psychological work can, can undo that. So it's pervasive, this, this issue, right, of, of the judgmental mind. So how to work with that? Maybe I want to finish with that. There's a lot more that I can say, and I'm actually um, working on a book on this, so I'm trying to bring this a lot to, to a clarity. It's been an interest for quite some time. So how to work with views and judgments? I think the first, the first approach is just to start tracking them more. You know? And so this is really, um, you know, that, you know in, the, in these evening talks, uh, typically one of us will be talking more about, well, more talking about the individual practice in a way that has implications for the social dimension of our practice. But, the, but in many ways, these, these can be individual practices. So how to work with views and judgments. First of all, start tracking them, start noticing them. And again, we can notice judgments, particularly because there's some charge, some energy, and some repetition. We can, we can, so we can study them in a few ways. When we're meditating, we can track, uh, for example, a judgment of self or a judgment of another person. You can track in, you know, in, the, in the dining hall. Judgments are quite pervasive, the judgmental mind. And um, when you start tracking them, it can be a little bit scary. Because you notice, oh my God, there's a judgment. Oh, there's a judgment. Oh, there's a judgment. A lot of judgments. <laughs> but that's not a judgment, is it? <laughs> right, so, um, so to track them is really part of the practice, is the, is the starting point of the practice. We can also look at particular judgments when they're quite strong and study them in, in the ways that I gave this morning. We can uh, be with the judgments in the body. And really, when it, so when a strong judgment comes, really say, okay, this is a chance to study them. Because what I have found in working with people is that to transform judgments, partly we have to see into them deeply enough 
So we see some of their roots. And what I have found is that the roots of the judgmental mind are actually an unacknowledged or unprocessed pain. So, the, and then we have to somehow touch that uh, in part to, to transform it. So the person who is really judgmental, about, oh, that was a, that the president's policy is just a betrayal of what he said during the campaign, you know, and gets really judgmental about that. Again, might be some discernment, but they're typically, uh, it's driven maybe by a kind of a, uh, could be driven by a sense of um, uh, grief or anger or um, real uh, a sense of uh, I have been betrayed that could be connected with anger, sadness, and so forth. Uh, and that when one doesn't touch the emotions, the thoughts just have uh, occur in a loop. And so again, to go back to a lot of what Joanna Macy's work does is to touch the emotions behind repetitive chronic uh, thought patterns can be a way of healing them. Or, you know, another example that I like to give is, is imagine someone who was taught at age four, don't be angry. Probably true for many of us, right? Don't be angry. And what happens to the child at age four who's taught not to be angry? Could be, could be depressed, but... Yeah. Yeah, basically, in, in, in theory, the child has a, has a choice. I can either continue to be angry and perhaps get my food elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Which basically is not a viable option. <laughs> or I can suppress my anger. Okay? And I suppress my anger. And then I'm about age nine, I've suppressed my anger. What happens if anger arises in myself? Hmm? I would very li- I might have a few behaviors, but the most predictable one would be I would judge myself essentially because I've equated being angry with being bad, something like that. And I would judge myself. What happens if I see other kids being angry? They're bad. I'm judgmental towards them. I mean, this is a deep chronic judgment. It suggests a way that actually when we go deeply into judgments, it takes us into, into deep structures of self and can be very powerful work when we follow them. And so if I'm going to be um, uh, working, you know, I suppose I come to a retreat, I uh, learn about the possibility of working with judgments, I notice, oh, there seem to be a whole lot of judgments about when I get angry or about other angry people. Hmm, let me just be mindful of those. Let me track those. If a person tracked it enough, that person would be able to get back to the original, basically, self-fragmentation, eventually. You know, sometimes with, with help. You know, some psychological work does that as well. And would be able to get back there and would feel a certain kind of pain the pain of fragmentation, and would actually, uh, might at the same time, be able to have a different attitude towards anger that would be able to, to come in. And so what I have found is that uh, judgments are connected with pain, and part of the work is to go further into them and touch, touch that pain. You know, even our small judgments, you know, um, I, I did a lot of my 
judgment practice here on retreat, and I would sometimes be judgmental about the way they had set up the food line. I think you know that from previous conversations, but these are two of our beloved cooks here. <laughs> and this, was, this was way before they were working at Spirit Rock, so I think everything's changed. And uh, so I would uh, sometimes uh, say, they've lined up the taco line, so it takes 20 minutes to go through. And I'd be a retreatant. I would... <laughs> and then I would actually, I would do some practice. I'd, oh, I would say, oh, what's there? Oh, there's impatience. There's a kind of pain, we might say. I would touch the impatience, and then I'd be completely open. <laughs> Although I might, give, I might write a note to the cooks. <laughs> <laughs> And so the, the work we do, the work we can do with judgments, I think also views, because a lot of our contracted views are quite similar to judgments. We track them, first of all. We're mindful. We, we take the stronger ones. We can study them, go more deeply into them. A lot of practices. The dropping down practice I gave this morning is a very powerful practice of judgments. You find a chronic judgment that's mostly operating at the mental level, bring the attention into the body. In the upper chest and keep the attention there just for a minute or two and do that many, many times. It can sometimes open things up. And so we can be mindful. We can work with um, uh, going more deeply. And maybe the last thing is that it really becomes um, important when we're doing this work to really have it all framed by compassion and by loving kindness. What I have found is that if, if that's true, that going to judgments or going into probably any of the places where we're really strongly attached is actually going into painful territory. It's very important to be doing practices like metta, loving kindness, compassion practices, being with, basically being with beautiful states, being with awakened states and having that be a regular practice. So when I work with people in judgment groups, as I think I mentioned this, I I said, develop a good mindfulness practice, develop a strong heart practice because we're going into the territory that we have to have a certain compassion. We also have to have ways to balance ourselves when, like, we have a judgmental attack. <laughs> you know, anyone had judgmental self-judgment attacks? They come often, like, at 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, or at... Moments when we're most vulnerable. It's like they're sneaking around saying, okay, is, is, is he or she vulnerable enough? I can exam. <laughs> you know? And so we have to have uh, tools to give antidotes to the judgments. You know? And so uh, heart practices, and those are, those are really good starting practices with the judgmental mind. You know? And then there are a lot of levels to it. I mean, we, to work with the internalized judgments that we've got from society, it's often very helpful to be with groups who are looking at the same thing. We talked about that earlier. You know? So really in, in um, summary, really to conclude, um, when we work with these practices, with views and with judgments, and we go into some of the roots of the reactivity, when we go into the roots of why there's attachment, why I have such a charge with this person's view, why I'm so judgmental, not so much thinking it out, but actually studying it. And when we can really distinguish the discernment 
from the reactivity. What that means really is that the judgmental mind isn't the enemy. Thinking is not the enemy. But particularly, judgmental mind is not the enemy. Judgmental mind actually has intelligence often. Often it's what carries a moral energy. And yet it has to be separated from the reactivity where it becomes poisonous. So it's really a big area for people in the social field, social service or social change to work with it. And, and yet it's possible. The beginning point is really just to start tracking it. You know? And we can maybe uh, talk further about that you know, as, we, as we proceed in the retreat. But I wanted to offer that perspective because it's really uh, crucial to be able somehow to be skillful with our views, with our theories, and, and particularly with the judgmental mind because it can really um, get very confusing and can really make our relationships and our work uh, more difficult. How to, be, how to be skillful, how to be wise, how ultimately to use the intelligence, the moral energy, the wisdom that's there potentially with views and judgments uh, skillfully, wisely, and ultimately compassionately for the benefit of others. Not so easy, but there's, there are ways to, uh, there are very concrete ways to work with it. So I think it's a, probably a big area for most of us. You know, some of us may be more focusing on self-judgment. Some of us may more focus on judging others. Some of us may be equal opportunity judgers. <laughs> so so um, I, offer, I offer those perspectives for our, for our practice in this area that is there in the retreat. It's a big one. And it's a challenging one. And it's a necessary one. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.